Well, good morning, church. It is wonderful to see you all on this, uh, I was going to say brisk, but it's, we're far beyond brisk. Amen? Yeah, it's a little cold out there, but, uh, but thank you for bearing the cold with us this morning. For those that uh, elected to stay at home this morning, we're glad that you're joining us online and uh, pray that our time this morning is a blessing to you as well as those that are here. Uh, so disciple, uh, as we continue on, this is now week two as we begin this journey looking at um, Jesus' disciples, their life, the things that we can learn, the things that, that they have to teach us. As we look at each one of their lives, we'll find out a bit as far as we can from the scripture and history, their character and who they were, but most importantly, who they came to be in Christ. And the legacy and the testimony that they leave for you and I today. But last week as we began, Brandon gave us a good definition of disciple that we would follow. And just by reminder, let's read together um, what we would consider a disciple to be. And that would be uh, a disciple is a learner, an apprentice, someone who believes in the ideas and principles of their master and tries to live the way that person did. In the Greek, the word is mathetes, which is simply a learner, an apprentice, a pupil, someone that comes alongside and watches and looks and then seeks to follow after that example. Now, Jesus, he had many disciples. You know, we know of the 12. 12 of them were called um, separately, uh, but he had many that followed after him. But 12 were special. Last week, we read in uh, Mark's account as he um, gives the list, kind of the official list of the 12. This morning, we want to read from Luke chapter 6 and read through this list one more time together. But Luke includes something else. He he. He adds on something here um, that is important for us, but I want to touch on it here as we begin. But in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all that night he continued in prayer to God. So as Brandon shared last week, we, we saw that Jesus, before he chose these special 12 amongst the disciples that he had, he prayed about it. It wasn't a flippant thing that he did. He went and he sought the Lord. He sought the Father's will on these things. And then in verse 13, And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. And then Simon, whom he called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. But he says in verse 13 there, he says, Of them he called his disciples and chose from them the twelve whom he called apostles. So you have disciples, and then here you have these 12, and they're giving, given a different name. He's calling them something else. In the Greek, it's apostolos. But this means a delegate. 
It means an ambassador or a messenger. It's one sent forth with orders, but the orders they're sent forth with bear the authority of the one that sent them. So you have his disciples. Among the disciples, he calls 12 and calls them apostles and makes them his delegates or messengers that he sends out with his authority. So you have these apostles now who are named apostles, but at the same time, they're still disciples nonetheless. As they continue on and they watch their teacher, they watch their master, and they learn the message that one day they're going to give out. The commission, we know from Matthew 28, is to make disciples. He tells these apostles, his delegates, his messengers, who bear his authority as they go out into the world in the first century to establish his church. He says to make disciples, specifically of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But then he says, teaching them all that I have commanded you. So we have their firsthand account, first-hand account that they give and they begin to teach as they begin to make disciples. So for you and I today, as we bear that commission as disciples ourselves, we are to go and make disciples. But here's the thing is, who are we making disciples for? Peter, as he goes out, and John and James and all these apostles, they weren't going out and making disciples for themselves. John the Baptist had disciples, yes. But when Jesus came along, any discipleship that would point someone to the kingdom of heaven outside of Jesus no longer was relevant. John came preaching repentance and had disciples that followed him to preach repentance and his message of repentance. But when the Savior came, salvation was at hand. And it's his ministry that would take forth and change the world. So for you and I today, as we look to make disciples, we don't make disciples in our image. We make disciples to point them to Christ and they become Christ's disciples. And it's his message that we carry on. So we make disciples of Jesus, not ourselves. He's the model. He is the master. So as apostles, they had his authority, but as disciples, they had his teaching. For you and I, we have his teaching. And from each of those disciples, as we will, we can learn and glean things from them. Many of them are things that they directly said in Scripture. But as we look at this list and you look at every list that we find in Scripture of the disciples or the twelve At the top of that list, you find one name that's on every list. In many ways, you find him to be the leader. He's the spokesman, so to speak, of the rest of the 12. And as we talk this morning, we'll find find out a little bit more about him and maybe why he was the spokesman. But that was Peter. His name in Hebrew was Simon. Jesus gives him the name Peter. In the Aramaic, it's Kephos. But Peter is Greek, Kephos is Aramaic, but both mean rock or a stone. And we know that Jesus tells Peter, he says, uh, he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, says, you are the Christ, you are the son of God. And Jesus' response to him was, is flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father who is in heaven, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. He says, from now on, you will be known as Peter. From now on, you're going to be known as the rock, and you are the rock on which I'm going to build my church. Now, Jesus makes this statement to Peter at a time in his ministry where Peter is still very fallible, as we're going to see. 
Peter's still broken in many ways, as we will see. But nonetheless, Jesus determines for him something in a name. Your name is no longer Simon. You're no longer known as Simon. From this point forward, you are the rock on which I'm going to build my church. And as we look at Peter's life and his walk with the Lord, you're like, this is really the rock that you're going to build your church on? This guy? Because Peter, we'll find, was very bold. But he's also very brash. We find courageousness in him as well. But as we said, he was the first disciple mentioned in every list. Simon Peter was originally from Bethsaida, and he lived in Capernaum. And both of these cities were around the Sea of Galilee. We know him clearly from Scripture that he was a fisherman, along with his brother Andrew and James and John as well. Uh, It is these four to whom Jesus said, uh, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. But we know from Peter that he was likely an uneducated man. We can read in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4 whenever um, they heal the lame man at the temple and then they're before the high priest and the high priests are just confused. It's like, how are these men doing this? These are just uneducated common men. So we know that Peter was uneducated. He was a common man as we looked last week. Nothing very special about him other than the call placed on his life. We also know that Peter was married. He had a mother-in-law whom Jesus healed. But along with James and John, he was Jesus' closest disciple. We find in the New Testament that oftentimes these three men had more specific time alone with their master than the other 12. So Jesus had 12 disciples, but of the 12, he had three. And of those three, he had one in Peter, whom he was his closest to. So what are some of the flaws? And and you could say even strengths as well as we look through Peter's life, but he was bold. He became the de facto spokesman for the 12 as we read through the New Testament and the Gospels. Peter was the guy that he's in the group. He's he's the guy that you're glad is there. One, he's, he's likely a really good leader, but at the same time, he's the guy that will ask the question that you have that you're unwilling to ask. Anybody know a guy like that? Or you always hope that person's there. It's like, man, this is a really stupid question. I really don't want to ask it. Peter's the guy that's going to ask it. Hands down, if he's got the question, everybody else wants to know. They might be, hey, Peter, you want to ask this one? But he would lead from that place and he would ask those questions. He had a boldness about him to have a thing that he wanted to know and understand. And he was willing to ask that. But also, as we look at that, in that boldness, there's also a trust for the master. There's also a trust for the one that you're asking. Is that you would get a response. You would get a response, but you would get a response that wasn't judgmental. And of course, when we're talking about Jesus, we find his compassion. But we also will see how Jesus does respond to Peter. By way of admonition and rebuke. But he asked questions when he didn't understand parables. I want to count in Matthew 15. As Jesus tells the, the parable of the rich young ruler and, and, and what it costs. The rich young ruler, he says, hey, what, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, sell everything you have or keep all the law first. Well, I've done that. Okay, sell everything you have, follow me. And he walked away. He was unwilling to do that. Because he had great wealth. And Jesus uses this teaching to teach his disciples. It's going to be difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because of all the wealth and their unwillingness to give of those things. And Peter, along with the 12, it seemed, didn't quite understand that teaching. 
It can be plain to us, but Peter was willing to ask. Explain this parable to us. And Jesus' response, are you still without understanding? How do you not see this picture? But Peter was willing to ask. He declared Jesus as the Christ, as I said, as the son of the living God. He was the first apostle to do this. Because of his boldness, Jesus would give him the name Rock, as we said. Understanding the character and what would follow from him. Paul, the Apostle Paul, even believed Peter to be a pillar of the church. In Galatians 2, 9, he calls him such, along with James and John, that these are pillars in our church. But Peter also had a boldness to speak, but he also spoke when he didn't need to. I think we can relate to that. As we can be in situations where we have something to say and we can be bold enough to say it, but not the wisdom to not say it at that time. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is there with Moses and Elijah, and again, this is one of those situations where Jesus brings along his closest three and Peter, James, and John. But you see, Peter's always the one to speak, and Peter speaks up there as Jesus is there with Moses and Elijah. Of all people on this mountain, as Jesus is being transfigured and his glory is being laid upon him, and Peter approaches, and he's like, hey, should, should, I pinch, pitch, should we pitch a tent for Moses and Elijah? If there's ever a time to not talk, Peter, this is going to be the time. Moses and Elijah are having a court discourse with Jesus who's glowing. And you're, should I make a tent? They're going to hang out. We're going to get a campfire. I mean, that's a little silly. Yes. But understanding, I mean, what, what, would, what would we give? What, what, could, what, could, what words could we give to that discourse between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? So there's a boldness. There's also a lack of discernment in when to act on that boldness. For you and I, we can be bold about what we do. We can be bold about what we have to say, what we, how we may lead in certain situations, but we also need to have a discernment and a wisdom about when to speak and how to speak into things. And we will do well to do that. So Peter was bold, but he was also brash. In Matthew 16, 22, also Mark 8, 32 gives this account. When Jesus would speak of the religious leaders and what they would eventually do to him, that he would be arrested, he'd be put on trial, and he's laying out all these things that are going to come to pass. These prophetic things that Scripture says are going to happen. He's telling his disciples these are going to happen. And what does Peter do? Scripture explicitly says that Peter rebuked Jesus. I mean, that right there. One, the boldness, yes, but just the brashness. You're going to rebuke Jesus. And how does he rebuke Jesus? It's very important where Peter's heart is. He loves his master, but he's, again, he's not understanding what's being told to him. Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus is saying, hey, I've got to go. These things are going to happen to me. Here's the reason these are going to happen to me. And Peter's like, no. That is not going to happen to you. Far be it from you that this will happen to you. And Jesus' response, famously to Peter, is get behind me, Satan. The word Satan in the Old Testament is, is, is adversary. 
Peter put himself in the position of an adversary against Jesus. Jesus is saying, this is going to happen. It has to happen. Here's why it's going to happen. And Peter's response is, no, that's not going to happen. So he's being adversarial against his master. It's rooted in love, but again, it's a lack of understanding of his master and what the reason for Jesus being here is. And Jesus, get behind me, Satan. But then Jesus says this, and it's very important. Jesus says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's mind was here. His master was with him. He loved his master. He didn't want to see anything happen to him. He wanted to follow him all the days of his life. But here Jesus is laying out a difficult teaching for him. But Peter, but Jesus tells him, your mind is not on things that are above. Your mind is not on the things that truly matter. Your mind is here. And Jesus would spend time looking to adjust that mindset. Also, another account in John chapter 13, when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. Again, it's Peter. And you can call it pride. Jesus says, Peter says, no, you're not going to wash my feet. Mm -mm. You can wash their feet. Jesus, you're master. You're not washing my feet. Because in that culture, to wash someone's feet was a lowly thing to do. Servants washed people's feet. You didn't touch feet. Feet were walked on. There were sandals, dirt, mud, and all the things. It was a lowly thing to wash someone's feet. So we understand from that Jesus' character to lower himself to wash and serve his disciples. And Peter says, no, you're not going to do it. But again, how does Jesus respond to Peter? Compassionately, but also directly. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. I'm looking to serve you, Peter. I'm going to serve and I'm going to wash your feet. No, you're not, Master. You're not washing my feet. If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And then what does Peter respond very abruptly? Simon Peter said to him in verse 9 of John 13, says, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. So he understood that. You can, you can wash all of me. There's a teaching. There's, there, there's a takeaway for you and I as an understanding to recognize that. There's a lack of wisdom and discernment, often with Peter and his boldness and his brashness and his pride. No, you're not going to wash my feet. I'm going to leave you up here. I'm going to attempt to adversarially again disallow you from lowering yourself. And Jesus said, if I don't do this, you have no share with me. Peter understands that statement. And then to flip the reverse in the extreme is, hey, you pour that all over me. Because his heart's desire was, again, to be with his master. So for you and I, we may not understand everything in our walk with the Lord. As we're disciples of Jesus, we're in his word and we're growing, we may not at a given time understand everything that we read in scripture. But if we're trusting our master, we trust that he does have good plans for us, though we don't understand all of it, but we understand that he did lower himself and he did so to save you and I. If we understand that truth, then there is a pouring, a covering that we should desire. Yes, Lord, if that is the case, Cover me with all of you. Peter also very arrogantly underestimated the test of faith that he would be under when Jesus is actually arrested. Jesus not only told them this is going to happen, he rebuked him, get behind me, Satan. 
Your mind is on things here. It's not on things above. And then when that moment comes, how does Peter respond? On the Mount of Olives in Matthew chapter 26, verse 33 and following, I don't have this for you. I'm just going to bullet point it. But on that Mount of Olives, Jesus told his disciples that they would all fall away this night. That very night, he tells them, you're all going to fall away. Every one of you. What does Peter say? He says, they might, but I'm not. First one to speak up. Speaking for himself. Also speaking for them. They might fall away, but I'm not. Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter says, I would die before I did that. Not going to do it. They'll do it. I'm not going to do it. Nope, Peter, three times you're going to deny me. Nope, I'm going to die before I do that to you. The brashness. But then not long after, on the same night, to prove his devotion, when the guards came to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do? Once again, he puts himself in an adversarial position. As they came to arrest him, he pulls out his sword and he cuts off the ear of Malchus, which is one of the temple guards coming to arrest Jesus. You see the blindness, the blindness that we can have. We can be bold, we can be brash, but we can also certainly be blind in our following after the Lord. We can have a misunderstanding, a misunderstanding, a lack of discernment, but we can very easily put ourselves in the way of what the Lord is doing in our lives, or the lives of others, the lives of our church, the lives of our journey group, the lives of our family or friends, by trying to get ahead of what the Lord is doing based on our understanding of a thing. I love this person so much, I can't allow them to go through what I see them about to go through. But if we're not seeking things prayerfully and seeking the Lord's wisdom and discernment on a thing, we can put ourselves in the middle of a situation and disallow, seek to disallow God's will in someone's life. Just as Peter brashly pulls a sword. And in a way here, it's been three years. Peter's been walking with Jesus for three years, yet he still has a sword. You ever thought about that? Now, I can also think about that and like, well, why did Jesus allow him to have a sword? Maybe that sword gave Peter some semblance of security under Roman oppression. Seeking to protect his master but in this case, one last time, he puts himself in an adversarial position between his master, Jesus, the Savior of this world, and the prophetic manifestation. That might be the wrong phrase there, but puts himself between what Jesus was sent here to do. And to the extreme, he cuts a man's ear off. That is rather brash. Scripture tells us that Jesus, though miraculously, in his compassion and in his character, picks Malchus's ear up and puts it back on his head and immediately heals him. His own captor, the one that's taken him, arresting him, and is about to hand him over to people that are about to brutally murder him, have him murdered, and he heals him from what his own disciple did. The difference in the character between the master and a disciple that lacks understanding. So Peter was bold, he was brash, but he was also courageous. We know in Matthew chapter 14, a wonderful story among wonderful stories. They're out on a boat in the midst of a storm. 
the disciples, and they look out there, and they see a figure, and they, they're scared. They believe it's a ghost, and then John recognizes, no, that's Jesus. She's a master. And then Peter, maybe somewhat skeptical, if it really is you, Lord, he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you. I think it's interesting that he doesn't say, ask me to come out to you. I'm going to need you to go ahead and command me if it is, in fact, you. I don't know if I can just respond to an ask. I'm going to need you to command me. But nonetheless, however it went about, Peter says, command me to come out to you on the water. And of course, Jesus says, come. And we know from that account that Jesus courageously, imagine the courage Imagine the courage of all this, what we know about Peter. He may be a lot of things. He's certainly courageous in the middle of a storm. If it's you, command me to come to you. Come. And he gets out of the boat. And we all know the story is that this man, there's only two men on planet earth that we know have ever walked on water. One was the savior of the world, the God of the universe. And the other was one that was faithful and trusted the God of the universe. But we also know from Peter, in the midst of that courageousness, there's always fear. There's no courage without fear. But when fear begins to tip the scale, and we know Peter became aware of the waves and the wind, and he took his focus off of the one that would keep him up, he began to sink. But again, in his faithfulness, as he did sink, what did Peter do? This is the greatest, one of the greatest lessons we can learn from Peter. is when his faith waned, and he began to sink, and he began to fall, he cried out for help, but he cried out for help. Lord, Master, save me. And Jesus immediately lifts him up. Scripture tells us, and then they got back in the boat. And I've always thought this, it's from that exchange. Peter, call me out to you. Peter's walking on water. He gets to him, becomes aware of all that stuff. He starts to sink. He cries out. Jesus lifts him up. And then the scripture says, when they get back on the boat, the waves cease. I've always thought, how did they get back on the boat? Some may say that Jesus carried him, but I dare to think that they both walked. And Peter did not take his focus off of his master as he returned to the safe place. So he was very courageous. And we know certainly that he was fallible. When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, again, along with others, the scripture says that in Matthew 26 that he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. Jesus goes to pray. He tells the disciples to remain here and pray, and they come back, and they're sleeping. Three different times, Jesus goes to pray and then comes back and finds them sleepy. They're tired. Their body was weary. And, Peter's, and John, Jesus, you, you, can't, you can't endure this for one hour, but they're fallible. And then as we read earlier in Matthew 26, after cutting off Malchus's ear, just hours later, according to what Jesus said, Peter said, I would die before I did this. But Peter would, in fact, in his fallibility, deny his master three times. The same man that would walk on water, that would faithfully trust him, that would just do all of those things, would, in fact, come to a place of weakness in three times before the rooster crows, deny him three times. And when he heard that rooster, Scripture tells us that he went away weeping bitterly. Peter, he ugly cried as he went to hide himself in his shame for what he had done. 
So Peter was bold, he was brash, he was courageous, but he was also overconfident in his presumptions. He was overconfident in his objections to Christ. And though told often, he arrogantly underestimated how bold or how his bold faith would be tested. All of it. In the end, Peter failed. It's interesting. If we go back to what Jesus said, you are the rock on which I'm going to build my church. And here we read about the rock crumbling. How is it? If you stopped in the, if you stopped the story right here, how is it? Was Jesus wrong in what he said about this man? As we see this rock not stand firm in the midst of trial, but he crumbles in the midst of trial. But there's a distinction between his ability to do a thing on his own. See, at this point in time, Peter did not have the one thing that he needed to do what Jesus had called him to do. And this is very important. As he walked with Jesus, he walked with Jesus hand in hand. But there was a point in time where Jesus tells all the 12, it is better that I go. Because when I go, I'm going to send someone to you. And it is that someone that is going to be with you. It is that someone that's going to teach you everything I said. It's going to bring to your remembrance everything I said. All the teaching I gave you, he's going to put it right there in your mind. He's going to put it on your heart. He is going to solidify your heart and your resolve to be the rock in which I called you to be. So Peter was certainly not unredeemable. In John chapter 21, verse 15 and following, we'll read this together. This discourse between Jesus and Peter, this is after Jesus was rose from the dead and he appeared to many people and then they're at the Sea of Galilee and the disciples are out there fishing and they see him on the sea. And again, John, that's Jesus. Let's get to the shore. Jesus had breakfast made and then we'll pick up in verse 15. It says, and when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. It's interesting here. The question that comes to mind is why, why would Jesus three times ask Peter, do you love me? I haven't read this often as I've studied in other places, but I believe this is Jesus redeeming the three times that Jesus or Peter denied him. There's nothing. I mean, there's, there's, there's no more of a betrayal than to deny someone. And in this case, Peter before his master who he walked with, he said, I'd die before I did that. But he betrayed his master in his denial. 
But there is nothing that is unredeemable for you and I. There's nothing that you and I can't do. There are consequences to the things that, I, that we do. Do not ever, don't, don't let that get twisted on you. There are consequences to decisions and things that we do, but there is nothing that is unredeemable between us and the Lord. And here, Jesus, three times to, to redeem three denials, asked Peter, do you love me? To where it grieves Peter, yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. It goes on from there as they're continuing to walk. And this is actually John's account. And we'll talk more of this when we get to John. And the writing in verse 20 of John chapter 21, um, they're continuing to walk, Peter and Jesus. And then John indicates something about their walk. The reason why John is knowing this is because John was walking right behind them. And Peter is actually asked Jesus, asked Jesus hey, what about this guy? What about, what about this guy right here? And Jesus more or less says, don't worry about him. I have something for him. Don't concern yourself with John. You follow me. But once again, we see Peter in the midst of it. His mind can go in other places. But Jesus assures him, don't worry about him. You're putting your mind on earthly things once again. Put your mind on heavenly things. You follow me. This is one of the last things that Jesus says specifically to Peter. is simply, you follow me. I'll deal with all of that. So Peter finds that he is forgiven, that he is loved, that he is his disciple. He's his, his, his apostle. But what about being a rock? What about being the rock on which Jesus would build his church? Well, we find the ignition appear, the fire in Peter in Acts chapter 2, they're in the upper room and they're praying and we read the account of the Holy Spirit descending upon them. And then it's Peter that steps out and he gives the message at Pentecost, a bold, fiery, and courageous message amidst all the people. It's Pentecost. This is one of those feasts where every Jewish man is required to come to Jerusalem. There are thousands and thousands of people in the city and surrounding area. And, Jesus, and Peter steps out and he gives a bold, fiery, courageous message that would say that the people were cut to the heart and they respond, hey, brothers, what do we do? Repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit, Peter says. And in Acts 2.41, the church is born, says 3,000 people were saved that day. And you begin to see the foundation laid and it's being built upon the apostles' teaching, but it's built upon the rock empowered specifically by the one that Jesus said he would send. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, You are my witnesses, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit comes, and Peter receives the power needed to be the rock he was called to be. And he boldly went and walked in it. In Acts chapter 3, he heals the lame beggar. In Acts chapter 4, he's before the high priests. The high priest and the priest, and they ask him, by what name is this man healed? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, responds in this way to the people that just had his master murdered, crucified. He says this boldly, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. 
The commission is not to make disciples that follow us. The commission is to make disciples that follow the Lord. And here Peter, in this testimony, it's not by my name, it's not by my hand, it's nothing that I have done. It's by the name of Jesus Christ whom you have crucified. His immediate response is to do a miracle, miraculous thing and point it directly to the one who sent him. There is that boldness, but it's boldness that is redeemed. There's the difference between you and I. We are, we are all born with character that's ingrained, that's built into who we are. We were knitted together in our mother's womb, but that cannot be an excuse to be something contrary to what God would say a disciple would be. Too many people too often would say, well, that's just the way God made me. So God made you to be sin? No. He did not. He created you. But you're in a sinful, broken world You come from the seed of Adam, therefore you are sinful. But he gave you character and traits that he one day would redeem. And then out of that redeemed character, you carry forth who you are and he created you to be. Not someone else, but you look after his image, take on his character, match that with your character and who he created you to be. So any boldness you have, any brashness you may have, maybe not brash, but carry forth in boldness and, and, and be courageous. Courageous. Cor- cor- did I say that wrong? Courageous. In the midst of a world that wants to bring you down, a world that make, wants to make you afraid to say something, Peter is standing before the very people that had his master crucified, but he boldly proclaimed it is in his name that these things are done. Your problem is not with me. Your problem is with the God of the universe. And if we can land there, take that from Peter. But continue on in Acts 8, along with John and Philip, he took the gospel to the Samaritans. And in Acts 11 and and also uh, Acts 15, uh, Peter advocates for the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. You see him carrying forward and breaking through cultural barriers as he's leading God's people to the Samaritans, the half-breeds that the Jews hated, but then also the Gentiles that was everywhere else. And it comes as a result of the Lord directing and leading Peter. After decades of ministry around 64 AD or 65, he writes the first of two letters. As we think about our takeaway, what's our takeaway from this? We look at Peter's life and, and, and what he has done and the example we have in him, much like Paul. Paul would say very plainly, you imitate me as I imitate Christ. I would say Peter would echo that sentiment exactly the same. But what can we take away from Peter's life? I want to look and just read this together. And this is Peter's own words. Peter's own words, likely not long from his own departure, and he says so himself. But let's read 2 Peter verse 1, or chapter 1. Beginning in 3, verse 3 and following. This is what Peter says as he writes to the church. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful nature. 
Peter says, you have everything that you need for life and godliness. Everything you need to follow after the Lord. Everything you need to be a true disciple you've been given so that through that you can take on the divine nature. Not your nature, the divine nature. You can put off who you were and put on who you were supposed to be. But then verse five, he says, for this very reason, because of that, here's what you do. If there's a takeaway from Peter's life, take it right here. For this very reason, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. It's no surprise that's a list of seven things. It's not an exhaustive list of traits that we should seek to put on, but in encapsulating discipleship and what would mark our lives, the number seven represents completeness. And if we look at Peter's life, he didn't always seem virtuous. He certainly didn't, wasn't full of knowledge as he was uneducated as he was, but he came to gain great knowledge in walking with the Lord. We certainly know he lacked self-control. He wasn't steadfast. He didn't persevere in the midst of trial. He wasn't full of godliness. He didn't always love well. But we find a redeemed Peter exemplifying these things as he leads and builds up God's church. And he tells you and I that we should look to put on, supplement our faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. But then he says this, he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You wanna know how you can do great work on in the church, for the church, for the Lord, and building up the church, look to supplement your faith with these things right here. We don't have time to talk about virtue, knowledge, and all those things that we can. Those are messages in and of themselves. But I encourage you to be students of the Scripture. Go to what Peter says and grab the Bible. Put some knee pads on and spend some time with his Lord and what it looks like to supplement your faith with these things. Because he says, if they are yours and increasing, you will not be ineffective or unfruitful in your work. If you don't desire those things, you don't desire those things and you will be unfruitful. But if you desire, desire fruitfulness and effectiveness, seek after these things. Verse 9, he says, whoever lacks these, things, these qualities is so nearsighted he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So if you have no desire for these things, if you are unwilling for these things, if you don't desire fruitfulness or effectiveness in your life, Peter says, bold, brash, courageous, but fallible, broken, Peter, redeemed, tells you and I, if you lack those and you have no desire for those, you are so nearsighted that you are blind and you have forgotten that you've been cleansed of your former sins. And woe are you. If you fall to that place, you and I, if we come to a place where we forget that we've been cleansed from former sins, what are, what's going to happen in our life if we forget we've been cleansed from former sins? We're going to keep on sinning. Our boldness is going to be misplaced. We're going to cut somebody's ear off 
and think we're doing the right thing because we claim Christianese. We grew up in church. But our lives look like they did then versus newness now. So verse 10 and following, we'll wrap this up. Therefore, Peter says, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What encouragement. What do we do? Practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For a, Coming from a guy that knows about falling. For in this way, you will be richly provided for you an inheritance or an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ or of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen and amen and amen and amen. It's fantastic news. So therefore, he says, I intend always, and this is Peter's, in a way, I think his, his, his last encouragement. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. He's making a statement that the Lord Jesus, his master made clear to him the way in which he would die. And he senses his death coming soon. And he says that it's coming. And he says in verse 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter was a disciple. He was a pupil. He was an apprentice. He was called an apostle, a delegate, a messenger, carrying forth in authority the message of his master. And though he failed many times, if there's a guy that fell upward, Peter. But as that was a result of Jesus Christ in his life, the work of the Spirit in his life, and his following after that, knowing his end, he would say, I'm going to make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. We have what he said recorded, ageless, in God's word. But the question for you and I, as we look at our life and what life we have ahead and life of discipleship, we are not apostles. We are disciples. Jesus commissioned them to go and make disciples. He did not say go and make apostles. He gave the apostles authority to start what only they could. And it's upon his teaching that we now make disciples. And we look at a life of discipleship. What do we want it to look like? We don't know the end of our days. Peter sensed it was coming. We know what happens. We look at Fox's Book of Martyrs, and history would tell us that Peter is crucified. But Peter did not want to be associated with the Lord and the Lord's death in such a way. So he requested that he would be crucified upside down, history tells us. Peter knew the way in which he was going to go. And he was willing to go. I pray that is not the case for any one of us. I'm thankful that we live in a country such as we do to allow what we currently do. But it also can numb us to the reality of the call that's placed on us in discipleship. But regardless of what we do, if we would seek after these things, we will not be ineffective. We won't be unfruitful. And at the time of our departure, we will have something that is given away that is lasting.
It is my desire as long as I'm here. God's call on my life is to make every effort to stir you up and point you to these things. And point us all to the Lord so that we all may grow as disciples. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this morning. And I thank you that you call uneducated common men. I mean, throughout history, Lord, you, you certainly called educated uncommon men. We find that throughout history, brilliant men and women that you called and you set apart and you used the gifts that you gave them. But I'm thankful for these men that you began with, Lord, to give us a picture is that we don't have to be awesome at anything. But we just come to you with whatever we have, whoever we are, and allow you to redeem, buy back the brokenness that exists in us if we're willing to confess that and receive from you your spirit and the only thing that you, the thing that you can give, Lord, that will set us apart in a world that needs disciples, true disciples of Jesus Christ, to point a broken world to you, Lord. And I thank you for Peter, for using such a man. And I pray that we can learn from him, Lord, and look to him and imitate him as he has imitated you. And many others as well. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.